This is a 3CR podcast produced in the studios of independent community radio station 3CR in Melbourne, Australia. Go to allthews.3cr.org.au. Simone to love somebody. You're on In Your Face on 3CR with James. On today's show, Rodney Croom joins us to talk about the federal government's religious freedom legislation. And to celebrate its 25-year anniversary, we play the Joan Golding story, an award-winning documentary produced by 3CR's Peter Davis about HIV-AIDS care and support activist Joan Golding. You're listening to 3CR Radio. In Your Face would like to thank Thornharbour Health for their financial support of this program. Thornharbour Health envisions a healthy future for our gender, sex and sexuality diverse communities. A future without HIV and a future where all people live with dignity and respect. To find out more about them, search Thornharbour Health on your search engine or find them on Facebook. In 1994, 3CR was able to win the Community Broadcasting Association of Australia Award for Best Information Program for a documentary called The Joan Golding Story. 
This year marks the 25th anniversary of this achievement. In the program, Joan Golding tells in a heartfelt way the story of caring for her son Martin, who was dying of AIDS in 1988. Many people might not know what the stigma was like surrounding HIV-AIDS back in the 80s. Joan describes the reactions of her local community in Warrandyte and the people who stuck by their family, and also the people who couldn't cope with AIDS stigma, such as the local church minister. The Joan Golding story reminds me, as its producer, of the theme that from little things, big things grow. After Martin died, Joan started to see other parents of people with AIDS. Then she started to speak to school groups and take HIV-positive people like myself as co-speakers with her into schools to tell our lived experiences. This grew into the Positive Speakers Bureau that now sends HIV-pos men and women to speak to about 20,000 students per year in Victoria. One older woman's story significantly defeated HIV-AIDS stigma right across Victoria. Other states then set up their own speakers' bureaus, and the fact that HIV stigma has decreased in current times is due to school kids growing up and hearing the real stories of HIV-positive people. This radio program, The Joan Golding Story, was produced at 3CR and it went on to be broadcast in full on 3AW primetime on The Paul Barber Show. An incredibly gutsy move by that presenter, Paul, as we know 3AW has a very conservative audience. It gained a huge positive response, including even praise by the infamous Premier, Jeff Kennett. The story may be confronting at times, as this was an era when there were no treatments for the HIV virus that now make it undetectable in people. The 1980s was an era when people with HIV lost their immune systems and it was luckier to sometimes die quickly. I caught HIV back in 1985 and I'm part of less than 5% of people diagnosed back then who are still alive today. As I hear this story by Joan again, I think of her warm, loving smile and her strength to tell this story at a time when the public were frightened and very ignorant. And finally, I want to say my name's Peter Davis and I'm really thankful to James and In Your Face for rebroadcasting this story because back in the early 1990s, In Your Face was where HIV Positive Radio began. The story runs for about 45 minutes, so grab yourself a cuppa and get comfy. Okay, let's hear Joan now. This is a story of a family who looked after someone with AIDS. And I tell it because I want people to understand that AIDS is something that can happen to any family, regardless of race, colour or creed. Uh, We certainly didn't expect that it would happen in our family. The story begins quite a while ago. When I was a young woman, my husband and I met when we both worked in the physics department at Melbourne University. And we married when we were quite young and went to live at Warrandyte outside Melbourne. Now, my husband continued in his exciting career in physics, which took him around the world most years, 
but I stayed at home and brought up our four children. And I enjoyed doing this very much. Warrandyte is a beautiful place in which to live. We live very near the river and we did lots of kayaking and picnicking and bushwalking and all the things you can do with children in a semi-rural area. And I look back on those years with great pleasure, as I know my children do. But of course, like all people's children, my children grew up. And the three older ones all married within two years. And just at that time, Martin, about whom I'm going to tell you today, was ready to go to Melbourne University himself. And although Warrandyte is a beautiful place in which to live, it's not a great place to get into or out of. We have an abysmal bus service. We had then and we have now. And Martin was not able to get to lectures at the times he needed to. So he went to live in Carlton near the university and he took a part-time job in a restaurant in Ligon Street to earn extra money. Now this left me at home for large periods of the year on my own because Ron was still travelling. And he was worried about what I would do with all this spare time I now had. Of course, I was not worried about this at all. I'd been looking forward to it for years. But he asked my youngest sister what she thought he could give me for my 50th wedding pre uh, birthday present. And she thought it would be very nice if he gave me a spinning wheel. Now, I found this a very odd present when I received it because I knew nothing about spinning or weaving or any of those things. I'd done some knitting for the children when they were young, but that was all. However, I had this wheel, and I think Ron had given it to me because he saw the spectre of the sherry bottle in the background. I think he thought I might find some unsatisfactory way of filling in my time. I learned to use the spinning wheel and Ron was very pleased because I think when he came home from his overseas trips he thought he might find this contented person sitting by the far side with the spinning wheel which would have been very lovely for him but of course this isn't what happened. I did learn to use the wheel and I did amass vast quantities of hand spun wool. I knitted handspun jumpers for all the family and for absolutely everyone else I knew who would accept one, and still the wool pile grew. So I decided I should find some other way of using the wool. So I enrolled in a part-time course at the Council of Adult Education in tapestry weaving. And I quite enjoyed that and I appeared to be able to do it quite well. And the tutor of that class was about to begin a full-time professional handloom weaving course at the Melbourne College of Textiles, and she persuaded me to enrol with her. Well, I had great trouble in this course. We were taught Scandinavian weaving techniques by a Latvian master weaver in broken English, and it was not easy, and I wanted to pull out of the course, but the children wouldn't let me. So I persevered and eventually Martin and I both graduated at about the same time. He did very much better than I did. He graduated with honours in languages and politics. But like many people who complete arts courses, Martin had no idea what he wanted to do next. 
He knew that he didn't want to teach and he didn't want to go into the public service. But the people who ran the restaurant that he had been working in part-time had been wanting to build a beach house and they wanted to go overseas and do various things. And they asked Martin, would he like to manage the restaurant for a while? So he did that for a couple of years. Meanwhile, I was proceeding with my spinning and weaving and doing quite well. Eventually, one of our daughters saw in the age application forms for the Department of Foreign Affairs in Canberra. They were looking for trainee diplomats. Now, Martin was persuaded to apply, but we didn't know that the department had not had applications open for many years, and 25,000 young Australians applied. Well, of course, it took the department in Canberra a great deal of time to go through these applications. It took them three years. At the end of that time, they had chosen the five people that they wanted, and Martin was one of them. And we were very pleased and proud and quite sure it was because of his splendid degree. But the department told us it had nothing to do with that. It was because he had been able to manage the restaurant in Ligon Street. And they felt that if he could deal with difficult restaurant clients, he could deal with anyone he might meet anywhere in the world. He did yet another year's training in Canberra and then he received his overseas posting. He became third secretary and military attaché in the Australian Embassy in The Hague. Meanwhile, I had commenced my second career. I had been asked to go back onto the staff of the Textile College to lecture in textile technology. And this combined the scientific part of my training and the textile part. So that was very satisfactory. Um, Ron and I went twice to see Martin while he was um, in The Hague. And we found him living there in very great splendour. He had a beautiful apartment in The Hague and he was living with his Dutch friend Arian. Now, I had known that Martin was homosexual since he was about 16 or 17. And when I speak to senior classes in secondary colleges these days, someone will usually ask me how I felt when I first knew that Martin was gay. And I remember that I felt extremely sad because I knew that Martin wasn't going to have the happy family life that I had had. And I knew then, as I know now, that our society is not set up to deal kindly with anyone who is different. Certainly not different in that way. But it really made no difference to my relationship with Martin, nor his relationship with anyone else in the family as far as I know. But Ron and I were not surprised to find him living there with Arian. I would like to be able to say that I formed a warm and loving relationship with Arian. Many parents of homosexual children do manage to do that. They accept their children's partners as one would hope to accept a son-in-law or daughter-in-law. But this didn't happen with Arian and me. Arian found it very difficult to accept Martin's parents or anyone's parents uh, for that matter. He had been thrown out of his home when he was 14 when um, his parents suspected he might be gay. 
so he didn't readily accept us. We did manage uh, a civil relationship, but I wouldn't call it warm. Um, meanwhile, um, I had been asked by the Australian Wool Corporation to act as a consultant to the Thai silk industry. And I was doing quite a lot of traveling through Southeast Asia, teaching uh, the spinning and dyeing and weaving of Australian wool, which really wasn't what Ron had in mind when he bought me the spinning wheel for my 50th birthday. But it was very satisfactory for me, of course. Martin's career was going very well. He was the only diplomat in the Dutch embassy, in the Australian embassy in Holland, who could speak Dutch. And he became advisor to the ambassador and we felt that he was headed for great things. So Ron and I were very surprised in the middle of 1986 to have a phone call from the department in Canberra to tell us that Martin was ill. And Martin was now 29, so we felt for them to be telling us about his state of health meant that he was very ill indeed, and I began to prepare to go to Holland. But before I could do much about that, we had another phone call, this time from Martin, still in hospital in Amsterdam, and he was furious that the department had seen fit to notify us, and he said I was not to go to Holland, that he would be shortly coming home. So we waited, and in a few weeks, he and Arian arrived at Tullamarine. It was a day of great rejoicing when they came. Only Ron and I had seen Martin in the last five years, so our children and their husbands and wives and their children and my sisters and our friends and Martin's friends all went to Tullamarine and then all came home to Warrandyte and had what seemed to me to be a very happy day together. But I wonder what sort of a day it was for Martin, because at the end of the day, when everyone had gone home and Ron and Arian were walking in the garden, Martin and I were sitting on the balcony of our house. We have quite a small house, but it has a balcony that runs the full length, and we have a wonderful view. We look right down the river valley to the Great Divide, and we spend a great deal of our time out on this balcony. Martin and I were sitting there having coffee and he said to me, Mum, I have to tell you something. And I said, what could it be, darling? We've been talking all day. And he said, I have to tell you that I have AIDS and that I am dying. And I will never forget that moment as long as I live. It was the moment of my greatest grief. I was totally devastated. He also told me that he wanted to die at home in Warrandyte, and this surprised me because he and Arian owned a house in Holland, and Martin had a share in a property in northern New South Wales with friends from the restaurant in Lagon Street. But he wanted to come home where he remembered the happy childhood we'd all had together. I asked him not to tell Ron about the diagnosis until I found a better time to tell him. When I did find what I thought was a better time, Ron was much braver about receiving the news than I had been. He had even suspected Martin might be at risk of contracting the virus because of his lifestyle. We told our other children 
and we told those of their children that we thought were old enough to hear the news. And one of our sons-in-law asked that no one else in Warrandyte be told. Warrandyte is still really a small place. And as in all small places, when one person hears some news, the news very quickly spreads throughout the community. And he had two children at the local primary school and he feared discrimination against them. So against Martin's wishes, we didn't tell anyone else in our community that Martin had AIDS. I told my two sisters and a very close friend of mine and I felt that we needed to tell a few professional people. Martin had come home with the tip of a surgical instrument in one of his teeth and I very much wanted that removed. And I wanted to tell our local doctor because our two daughters live in Warrandyte and we were all attending the same doctor at that time. And uh, I wanted to tell our local vicar. I am an Anglican, a cradle Anglican. I had been going to this church in Warrandyte for 40 years at this time. None of these people came up to expectations. The dentist went to pieces and was totally unable to help anybody, let alone someone with AIDS. The doctor said that he had no information whatsoever about HIV AIDS. It was still very early, 1986, in Australia for AIDS. But he later did inform himself and he was a help to us all. When I went to see the vicar, I remember he was standing and he was very tall and slim and his knees buckled under him when I told him that Martin had AIDS and I counselled him for an hour and a half so I knew that this wasn't where we were going to get our support and I began to pray and I prayed very hard that I would be given the strength and the grace to look after Martin and that he would be given the calm and peaceful death at home in Warrandyte that he wanted. Now, Martin was really quite well that first year. He had recovered from the pneumonia he had in Holland. And uh, he and Arian stayed with us for Christmas. And then Arian went back. Arian is a journalist and had to go back to his job. Martin stayed with us till the weather here began to get cool. And then he wanted to go back to Europe where it was getting warmer. We didn't want him to go, but he was now 30. We could hardly stop him. So he went off to Europe and Ron and I spent that winter of 87 doing everything that we could think of that we could afford to our house that would make it possible for me to look after Martin when he got very ill. We still had very little information about HIV AIDS and we really didn't know what was ahead of us but we did what we could. Martin came back at the end of the year And I thought he was not so well. I thought his eyesight wasn't so good. And I thought his short-term memory wasn't so good. But he said I was not to fuss. He was perfectly all right. And uh, he appeared to be fairly good. Arian came out for Christmas of 87. And they went for a long trip around Australia after Christmas. And then Arian went back to Europe. And Martin was now not so well. And he and I began to go... Fairfield Hospital. I dare say some of you will know Fairfield Hospital. It is a very beautiful place. There are no multi-storey high-rise buildings at Fairfield. Buildings are old red Victorian brick buildings and in the beautiful gardens there are peacocks 
and inside the buildings are the most caring and compassionate people I have ever met. And it was now that I began to learn what I had promised. I had promised to look after someone who had a very terrible illness. And I worried, but the staff and the patients at Fairfield all helped me a great deal at that time. We continued to go quite regularly to Fairfield for Martin to have treatment. So I was very surprised when the weather here began to get cool that Martin wanted to go back to Europe once more and we really didn't want him to go this time. But he was now 31 and we couldn't stop him. So off he went and it was a very bad time for us, the winter of 88. Martin sank into severe depression. Arian was not able to manage him. He would ring us up and say, I want to come home. And we would say, get on the plane, darling, come home. And he'd say, yes, yes, I will. But he wouldn't get on the plane. So I would say, I'm coming to get you. I've got a ticket. I'll come and get you. And he'd say, no, no, don't do that. That's ridiculous. Of course I'll come. Just about that time, at the end of 1988, I was sitting in the daycare unit one day waiting for Martin to have his treatment and a girl came in and she told me her name was Ilana and she was the Royal District Nursing Service representative in the hospital and they would like to help me. And I was getting very tired and so I said that I'd be very glad to have some help and she said, well, we've been asking Martin for weeks to let us speak to you. We're supposed to work through the patient. And he says, why do you want to help her? She's managing perfectly well. She doesn't need any help. And I know now that this is what they all say. Their mothers work very hard to do everything possible for them and they don't notice how tired they're getting. However, Ilana sent out to Warrandyte, to our house, the AIDS specialist nurse with the RDNS, um, a lovely girl called Sandy, and Sandy came to assess us. Now Ron and I had never been assessed in our lives and we found this a very strange experience. We answered many, many questions, but we didn't find it intrusive because Sandy was a lovely girl and we were very fond of her as time went on. After she had assessed us, she asked to meet Martin. Now Martin was having one of his very charming days and Sandy, who was supposed to alert the local district nurse to how much help we needed um, and to send her in to provide that help, she decided that she wouldn't send the local district nurse, that she would look after Martin herself. And she came every day from that day until the day Martin died. And she looked after not just Martin, she looked after me and Ron and anyone else who happened to be in the house. She also told us that we were eligible for help from the local home help scheme. Now I had always thought this was for elderly people who could no longer look after their homes. I had no idea we would be eligible for it. But they sent their supervisor to assess us and this lady said that we were indeed eligible for help, but that I must understand that the person who came would never enter the bathroom, the laundry, the toilet, or the patient's bedroom. And I said that that would be quite all right as long as she did some vacuuming and dusting that would give me more time to spend with Martin and I'd be very grateful. 
Well, when the lady came from the council, her name was Anne, and she was what my mother would have called a treasure. She knew nothing about this nonsense of not going into any rooms in the house. When she came into the house, she made a cup of coffee and she sent me out onto the balcony and she said, don't come into this house unless I call you. And she answered the phone and looked after Martin and did the washing and cleaned the house. She was wonderful. And she was supposed to come one day a week, but I really don't remember many days after that first day when Anne wasn't in our house. And she's become a great friend in the, in the years since. We could also have had help, Sandy told us, from the Victorian AIDS Council. Now, this is an association of two and a half thousand people, all volunteers, who are trained into care teams who will go into the homes of people being looked after with AIDS, and uh, they will do absolutely anything that's necessary. They will garden or wash or clean or nurse or whatever is required. But we had our family and we now had Sandy and Anne and we didn't feel we needed that help at that time. But they sent someone out to assess us just in case we ever should need their help. Um, now, straight after that, it was to be World AIDS Day, which is on December the 1st. And Martin heard at the hospital that there was to be a service at Holy Trinity East Melbourne on this day. And he decided he would like to go. Now, as far as I know, Martin hadn't been to church for years. He may have been to official occasions with the ambassador, I don't know, but he certainly hadn't been with us for a long time. But Ron and I were pleased and said we'd go with him to Holy Trinity. Now, Martin was very tall and handsome, and he had beautiful handmade European clothes, and he dressed very carefully for this service. And when he walked into Holy Trinity East Melbourne, he created quite an impression. And he was delighted about this impression. So delighted that he decided he would come with us to our little local church on the following Sunday. Now, as far as we knew, no one else in Warrandyte knew that Martin had AIDS. And I don't know to this day if they did or not. But when Ron and I walked into our little local church on each side of Martin, who now had to be supported, we were met by such a wave of love and compassion that I knew that these people who knew us so well had realised there was something very wrong in our family. And we had denied them the opportunity of supporting us, and I feel very bad about that. And I try now to persuade people who are in that situation at least to tell their family and their close friends. But I have hardly any success because people are so terrified about community attitudes. But if ever I am successful, if ever I do convince them to tell those close to them, they have the same experience we did. People are happy to support each other, given the whole truth and told from the beginning, they will support each other. I know people who have had very bad reactions when they've told other people that they have AIDS, but I don't know the circumstances under which the news has been given. But um, we have never at any time come up against any sort of discrimination or any adverse attitudes at all, not ever. So now 
we had the whole community of Warrandyte to help us. They were just wonderful. People came that I hadn't seen since Martin was in kindergarten, friends of his from secondary school, all sorts of people turned up and it was just wonderful. We had many visitors in the house all the time and Martin loved that because he was very sociable. Arian came out for Christmas of 88 and he went back again in January because he had to go back to his job. Martin's condition was deteriorating quite fast now. Um, I had to take him three days a week into Fairfield Hospital and he had to be taken by wheelchair. This was very exhausting for us both and eventually we got to the stage where we could no longer do it and Sandy gave Martin his treatment at home. We used to put Martin out on a day bed on the balcony in the mornings. We had a wonderful autumn in 1989 and we had some lovely mornings out on the balcony with lots of visitors coming, Sandy and Anne coming every day and various other people, lots of friends and relations coming as well. My sister, who lived at Cheltenham, which is a long way from Warrandyte, used to come every day and after she'd gone home in the evening, I would find in the fridge a meal prepared and ready for all the people who were in the house. And that was always a minor miracle to me. I don't know how she did that. But all sorts of people did wonderful things. One day I answered the front door and I found standing there one of Martin's friends that he shared the property in northern New South Wales with. A man who had left Melbourne swearing he'd never come back. He had had a bad time here and he hated the weather, so he was never coming back. But there he was on our front doorstep. And when I asked him how long he was going to stay, he said, I'll stay as long as you need me. And he did. He stayed with us until Martin died. We had to get Arian to come back because we could see that Martin was going down fast. So we had those two people staying in the house and we had the constant stream of visitors. So it was a very busy but a very happy time, even though we could see Martin leaving us. On May the 12th, 1989, Sandy asked could she see Ron and Arian and me alone. And she told us that we must prepare ourselves for Martin's death. She could see signs that he wouldn't be with us much longer. Now, Ron and I were not surprised because we could see those signs too. But Arian was very shocked and very distressed. And he rushed out of the house and bought a ticket to Holland and left on that day. And I can't understand that still. The next day, May the 13th, we put Martin out on the day bed on the balcony again with all the bits and pieces of equipment that he needed. And the stream of visitors came once more. At lunchtime, I made lunch for all the people who were there and then I took Martin's lunch out onto the balcony because I had to feed him now, he couldn't see at all. And he said, I don't want to have lunch on the balcony, I want to have it in my room. So I had to get Ron and the boys to carry Martin back into the bedroom and all the equipment that he had to go with him. And I rushed in with his lunch and I said, I want to hurry, darling, because this afternoon we have two people coming from the AIDS Council and they're going to help me with the night nursing. And while I was saying this, I was feeding him and he said, 
what's this you're feeding me? And I said, it's guacamole, darling. You know, it's avocado and tomato and things together. And he said, it does not taste like guacamole. And I said, well, darling, to tell you the truth, because these people are coming this afternoon, I didn't put the garlic in. I didn't want your room to smell like an Italian restaurant. And Martin, of course, said to me, you are so middle class. So I had to rush out to the kitchen, mash the garlic, go back and feed Martin. And by this time, the people had arrived from the AIDS Council. A very tall and charming Englishman, whom we still count as a very close friend, and a very busy lady. And while we were speaking to them in the living room, Martin called out from the bedroom, and I knew from the tone of his voice that his bed needed changing. So I said, if you'll just excuse me, I'll change Martin's bed quickly, as Sandy had shown me how to do, and then you might like to meet him. And the lady said, no, no, you don't have to do that. I will change the bed. That's what I'm here for. So I said, no, I don't think that's a good idea. Martin hasn't even met you. By now, Martin was yelling, so I had to go. And the lady followed me in. And I thought, this will be a disaster. So I said to Martin, darling, this lady's come from the AIDS Council to help me with the night nursing. And Martin, at his very best, said, How do you do? How delightful to meet you. And what is that beautiful perfume you're wearing? Well, those of you who've been in the room of someone whose bed needs changing will know the perfume is not beautiful. But the lady was completely taken in by all this charm. And while they discussed the perfume at the head end of the bed, I was able to do what was necessary at the other end. And it all passed off quite smoothly. Those people then left, Ron and I saw them off on the terrace, and by now everyone else had gone home. We went back inside, Ron stayed in the kitchen to make coffee, and I went in and sat with Martin and held his hand, and he said, what a busy day, Mum, what's going to happen now? And I said, nothing, darling, Ron's making coffee and we're going to have coffee and cake together. And he said, that'll be great, Mum. And in that moment, something happened in his head and he was never conscious again. It was Saturday afternoon. There was no doctor, no Sandy. Eventually, we sent for the ambulance. And when the ambulance came, Ron set off to meet us at Fairfield Hospital. But the ambulance men were worried. They thought Martin might die in the ambulance. The beautiful day had now turned to a Melbourne thunderstorm and Martin and I went through the thunder and the lightning and the rain with the siren blaring down the wrong side of the highway, not to Fairfield but to the Austin Hospital where at that time they didn't accept AIDS patients. But the girl in the casualty ward allowed Martin to be put in there and I begged and pleaded to have another ambulance brought so we could go to Fairfield. And while we waited for that ambulance to come, that poor girl had to wipe every surface of every piece of furniture, every piece of equipment with disinfectant because she'd allowed an AIDS patient into the room. Eventually, Martin and I arrived at Fairfield very late at night. By now, the thunderstorm had turned to a beautiful evening. Martin was put into a little room in Ward 4 
and these are little private rooms and they have double doors that open out onto a little balcony and the balcony looks out over the beautiful garden and the cool night air was coming in. Martin's two friends had arrived by now, Arian and Geoffrey were there in the little room with Ron and me and it was there that Martin breathed his last breath and when he did something quite wonderful happened. That little room was filled with something so tangible I could have taken arms full of it. And I believe it was the Holy Spirit. I, be I thought that God was saying to me, there you are. I've answered your prayers. You were given the strength and the grace to look after Martin. And most certainly his last conscious thought was at home in Warrandyte. I felt no tearing grief. I think I'd been through all that three years before when I first heard of the diagnosis. In the early hours of the morning, when Ron and I drove back up the freeway, I felt fulfilled. I felt that I had done everything I could do and I expected now to get on with my life. The college had kept my job open for me. I had lots of commissions for the private work that I do but I wasn't able to do any of it. I really couldn't settle to do anything. All sorts of people had good ideas about what I should do. They thought Ron should take me on an overseas trip or at least a long holiday, or that we should move house or I should start yet another career, but none of that seemed right. I went back to the hospital and I took all the bits and pieces of equipment they'd lent me to help me look after Martin. And I went into the daycare unit and the patients there asked me what I was going to do now. They knew what a demanding patient I'd had. And I said I didn't know, I didn't seem to be able to do what I thought I would do. And I said, what do you think I should do? And they said, would you see our mothers? And I said, yes, I will, I'll see your mothers. So I went to see all those mothers 15 women all over Victoria and into southern New South Wales and Tasmania and by the time I'd done that the hospital and the AIDS council and the churches all had families they thought it would be good for me to see and I was very worried about that because I am no more a counsellor than I am a nurse and I begged to be trained. I asked the hospital and I asked the AIDS council and they found this very amusing. They told me that I'd just done three years of training and they didn't know what else they thought, thought I could learn. However, I nagged away and eventually the Victorian AIDS Council allowed me to do their induction weekend. And this is a potted version of all the courses they offer to their volunteers. And I thought it was very good and very professional until we came to the lady who spoke on grief, loss, death and dying. And I so violently disagreed with most of what she had to say that I decided I would try on my own. And that's what I've been doing ever since. I try to go immediately when a family says they would like to see me because I remember how isolated I felt when I first heard about Martin's illness. And I know that the most helpful thing that we can do for each other in stressful situations is to share our experiences. So I'm now involved in a great deal of travelling. It's turned into much more than a full-time job. And in the last 18 months, I have been trying to 
form peer support groups for families affected by HIV AIDS in regional areas. And there are now 13 and the 14th about to begin. Um, I belong to three committees. I belong to the CAPE Committee, which is an association of the eight mainstream churches and the AIDS Council, all working together in the HIV AIDS field. I work for the Anglican AIDS Ministry and Education Committee, and I work on the uh, Fairfield Research and Ethics Committee, and I find that very interesting. I also speak to lots and lots of groups of people. I speak to senior classes in schools whenever possible because I think that is the most important place to speak. I speak to groups of Catholic priests who train at Fairfield. I speak to health professionals, men's clubs, and I speak to lots and lots of ladies' luncheon groups. And when I was speaking to one of these not long ago, one of the ladies said to me, Mrs. Golding, your son would be so proud of you. But I could hear this voice saying to me, Mum, you're so middle class. historic Joan Golding story there, produced by 3CR's Peter Davis. It's almost a quarter to five. You are in your face on 3CR with James. Well, the Morrison government has released its uh, religious discrimination bill, its draft bill. On the line, we have veteran activist Rodney Croom. Rodney, welcome back to the program. Hi, James. Thanks for having me on. It's a great pleasure. Rodney, what's the gist of the bill insofar as the LGBTIQ community is concerned? What should we be worried about? Well, quite a bit. Yes, there's quite a bit that we need to be worried about. And not just the LGBTI community, but I think a whole range of vulnerable communities across Australia. The issue that most people are aware of, of course, is the Israel Flower issue. In this bill, the government allows for so-called statements of belief to be made by uh, people outside of work hours and for those not to be constrained by codes of conduct uh, or inclusion policies that businesses may have uh, or that schools may have. So, of course, that opens the door to some quite hateful statements by employees towards each other or towards their, their employer or students against each other or against their teachers or whatever it might be. So that's obviously a concern because it, I think, increases the level of potential uh, derogatory and hateful language in the workplace. Then there's the provision that is called the Barnaby Joyce provision, which relates to healthcare practitioners and allows healthcare practitioners to uh, refuse to treat particular people on the basis of the healthcare practitioner's religious beliefs. And you can immediately see what that might mean, as well, obviously, as doctors refusing to be involved in terminations or euthanasia. It could mean them not wanting to deal with women who, who use contraception. It could mean that they don't want to treat transgender people. It could mean that they don't want to prescribe PrEP for gay men. There's some real problems there. 
And then, of course, there's what's called the Porteous Clause, after the Archbishop of Hobart, Julian Porteous, and this relates to uh, hate speech, basically. So what the government does is doing here is directly overriding uh, a, a particular section of the Tasmanian Anti-Discrimination Act, which is uh, related to humiliating, insulting and demeaning and, uh, and intimidating language. It's overriding that section because it doesn't, in the name of religion, because it wants people to be able to make statements that are humiliating and insulting and demeaning in the name of religion. It's uh, capping what the other states can do in terms of protecting their citizens from such speech. Uh, it's saying that, uh, that they shouldn't be able to legislate in that way. And it's also punching a hole in the existing federal anti-discrimination laws, the Race, Sex, Disability and Age Discrimination Acts, and, uh, and watering down the protections there. So in a, in a nutshell, what the Porter Bill does the Religious Discrimination Bill, is that rather than being a shield for people of faith to protect them from discrimination, as we were promised, instead it is a sword aimed directly at existing human rights protections for LGBTI people and other vulnerable Australians. And of course the media is touting this as a, as a keystone reform, a keystone piece of legislation for the government. To what extent do you think it was negligence of the government and you know, highly remiss that they didn't take this to the election? only just a few months ago. Yes, I think they would have... Um, I think it was remiss and deliberate. I mean, uh, if they'd taken this particular proposal to the election, it would have lost some vote, uh, particularly as people became more aware of the impact that it would have on the rights of LGBTI people, of women, of people with disability, of racial and religious minorities, and anyone who is in Australia who is vulnerable to hate speech and discrimination. I think it would have been very controversial and, like I said, would have lost some votes. So it's um, it's disingenuous of the government to come out now and say that it has a mandate for this. It definitely doesn't. And uh, I know this is a strong word, but I feel the government has lied to the Australian people. Even just a few weeks ago, the Attorney-General, Christian Porter, said that this bill would not override any existing protections for LGBTI people at a state level. And that's exactly what it does. Like I said, it specifically names the Tasmanian Anti-Discrimination Act and, a and the provisions in that which prevent hate speech. It specifically overrides them and it specifically prevents the other state from enacting legislation that would protect LGBTI people. And not just from language which is in the words of the Tasmanian provision that's being overridden, that would be humiliating or intimidating, but really any kind of uh, religious speech that is damaging to LGBTI people. One issue that's been raised, for instance, is that if a state was to move to outlaw conversion therapy against LGBTI people, outlaw the practice and the promotion of that particular kind of destructive therapy, then the Attorney-General, under the proposal that he has put forward, would be able to come in and immediately override any provisions that clamp down on the promotion of conversion therapy because the promotion of conversion therapy is usually a statement of belief, of religious belief. And he would have the power to override any state law that got in the way of a so-called statement of belief. Well, it sounds like the Attorney-General and the Prime Minister have Victoria in mind because, of course, Victorian Premier Dan Andrews has promised to do just that, legislate to ban conversion therapy. 
Yes, and I also understand the Victorian government is looking at a provision similar to the one that in Tasmania that the Commonwealth wants to override that would prevent humiliating and intimidating language. So, yes, it's not just Tasmania they have in their sights. It's any state who wants to move forward to protect LGBTI people from these dangerous therapies, conversion therapies, and from demeaning and intimidating language. So it sounds, Rodney, like religious freedom is being used as a tool to attack state sovereignty as well as the human rights of groups like the LGBTIQ community. Yes, it is. That's precisely right. As we've been saying, the concept of religious freedom is being used to attack people who traditionally fall foul of of religious, traditional religious beliefs, and that shouldn't be a surprise because the religious freedom movement, so-called, which arose in the United States as a backlash to marriage equality there in um, a few years ago, has gone on the offensive against LGBTI people, removing existing protections from state laws. Uh, right across the US, there's now, I think, 15 or 20 states that have religious freedom laws that allow for LGBTI people to be discriminated against in, in business services and in healthcare and, and, and in employment and whatever it might be. And so that's what it's all about. It's about taking away existing rights for LGBTI people. And it's no surprise that that's what's happening here in Australia. But it's a good point you make, James, about undermining the sovereignty of the states. Most of the positive LGBTI law reform we've seen in Australia over the last few years, with the exception of marriage equality, of course, uh, has been at a state level. Uh, We've seen uh, the beefing up of discrimination laws. We've seen moves to ban conversion therapy. Uh, We've seen uh, greater recognition of same-sex relationships. So it's no surprise to me at all that the Commonwealth, which is far more aggressive in this area at the moment, wants to curtail the powers of the states because um, the culture warriors in Canberra know that uh, it's the states that will move these law reforms forward and they want to exert whatever power they possibly can to stop that. And the power they're exerting in this particular bill is um, the power to protect religious, what they define as religious freedom. How has the ALP reacted and are you happy with their response at all? Poorly, no. Right. (laughs) Uh, The ALP has not condemned this law nor any particular provisions, which I find just astounding. I mean, the discrimination laws that the existing discrimination laws that this bill attacks are a Labor legacy. They're, they're mostly, almost entirely enacted under Labor governments, federal and state, and yet Labor hasn't launched a full-throated defence of them at all. Instead, Labor said that it's consulting, which is good. I mean, that's fine. It should consult. But uh, I'm astounded that it's not standing up for the principle of anti-discrimination. And indeed um, its and own standing party. standing up for the rights of states. Rodney, because of course... Make- uh, the Andrews government, of course, is a Labor government. Uh, it's it's astounding that, that state governments that have legislation that would be undermined and attacked and overridden by this uh, anti-discrimination provision in the name of religion um, that, that, that government is is pushing, that, that Anthony Albanese wouldn't actually be concerned about, about the rights and the, and the legislation of his state counterparts. Indeed. No, it is, it, it's a shock that Labor isn't more strongly opposing this bill, I'm hopeful that we will see state governments come out against those provisions which limit the power, their power to make laws to protect their citizens. Uh, and the Andrews government would be the, the logical first uh, government out of, the, out of the blocks there, and I'm hopeful that they will do that. If they don't, then it will be a, a, a terrible indictment on the Labor Party for not standing up for its own legacy. Uh, I, I think we're, 
it's probably no surprise to a lot of people who watch politics that Labor is weak on this at the moment because since the federal election, it seems to have retreated from a lot of its more progressive positions. There's a lot of talk about reconnecting with its working class base, whatever that means, and also reconnecting with religious voters. I don't think Labor lost contact with the religious voters, but that's the narrative. And that narrative is certainly playing out here with Labor being very weak in defence of of anti-discrimination principles. And Labor seems... One of the saddest parts of this is Labor seems incapable of disrupting the dominant narrative that this is somehow about the gays versus God. Like I said before, it's not just LGBTI people who will, will suffer a loss of legal rights because of this bill. Women will as well, particularly in terms of health care. People with disability will. I mean, under the provision in Tasmania that the federal government wants to weaken, the majority of complaints are from people with disability who are still enduring stigma uh, and prejudice and hate speech in the name of religion. Uh, you can imagine what that might be. You know, oh, if you have a disability, it's a mark of sin. Or uh, if you have a mental health problem, it's you're possessed by the by demons. These are the kinds of things that people with disability are still enduring. They're making complaints under this section, and the federal government wants to take that, that protection away. So it's not just LGBTI people, and I wish Labor was standing up for all of those minorities. It's astounding, isn't it? Because, of course, uh, this legislation in the name of religion seems to be attacking some of the most disadvantaged people in the community, which, of course, is meant to be the ALP's constituency. Yes, and I think that's a very good, that's a very good point, James. The, the, the religious leaders who have been pushing for this bill, particularly I mentioned the Archbishop of Hobart before who complained about being asked to go to a one-hour conciliation session at the Anti-Discrimination Tribunal, Anti-Discrimination Commission, because of his booklet that, that suggested same-sex couples mess with children. Um, he, he, he's saying that his freedom of speech and freedom of religion have been infringed, even though he continues to distribute that booklet. The Archbishop of Sydney, the Anglican Archbishop, is also out there saying, you know, that uh, Christians are victims and, and uh, being persecuted. The Ruddick Review found that there was no persecution of, or no substantial persecution of Christians in Australia. This is really about bishops trying to accumulate more power for themselves and more right to say whatever they want and do whatever they want at the expense of people who are actually disadvantaged, who are actually persecuted, who are actually experiencing discrimination. We need to turn the narrative around, and Labor should be leading on this. It should be saying, let's focus on those, for instance, people with disability or or women who need urgent medical treatment or whatever it might be, racial minorities, religious minorities. Let's be standing up for them rather than defending the rights of, of the already powerful. Ronnie Krim, we're out of time, but thank you so much for joining us today on 3CR. It's much appreciated. Thanks, James. You've been listening to a 3CR podcast produced in the studios of independent community radio station 3CR in Melbourne, Australia. For more information, go to allthews.3cr.org.au.